0: Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come.
1: Amen. Thank you very much. And uh, you may be seated. As Matt mentioned earlier, we are um, over this past couple of weeks, um, I should say much of the world's attention has been on the city of London in particular for the Olympic Games. How many of you have watched some things as far as the Olympic Games is concerned? Yeah. And, and we all have our favorites, right? I mean, sometimes it's gymnastics. Any gymnastics people out there? You know, some of it's, it's diving, swimming. Um, what about tennis? I don't know if you know, Murray beat Federer this morning. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and by the way, the Brits are really doing, doing unusually well for this Olympics. Um, I think the Brits are surprised about how well they're doing. Um, Basketball. Uh, The way that the Americans um, just completely tore up on Nigeria was almost embarrassing, if you're an American, um, in my opinion. Uh, And then almost losing to Lithuania the next game was just kind of unusually uh, humorous. Then there's ping pong. How often do you get to watch ping pong on TV, huh? I mean, you watch it, it's like. You know, it's like wow, this is really cool stuff. I mean, so this is some fun stuff. Then there's the there's the badminton thing, right? You know, how to lose a game, right? Um, you know, and just the whole ethics of of, of all of that. And then weightlifting, um, uh, which is kind of a, an amazing um, competition if you think about it. Um, just to be able to lift that kind of of weight, it's just it's just staggering. No pun intended. Um, and, and then. Did you guys see the, the heavyweight Greco Roman um, wrestling match between the, the, the Russian that was like just, he's like won it for like, you know, the last 50 years or something like that, and there was an American that beat him, and, you know, it was like one, there was one point in the whole thing, and the American did. All they did is they just hung on to each other, and they just <laughs> wandered around this circle, and somehow the American won, and it was like this incredible, incredible feat. Um, but, but, you know, Greco Roman wrestling actually goes back to the, the history of the uh, Olympic Games and um, they were actually originally called the Pan-Hellenic Games and they they took place between the city-states of Greece and um, what was really interesting about those games was even if they were at war with each other, you know, you're talking about Troy and Sparta and that kind, you know how sometimes they had little squabbles? When it came time every four years for for these games they would declare a truce across the land. And that truce then would give people peace and safety to travel to the games, to participate in the games. And after the games were over, I guess then they started to kill each other again. I don't know. But, I mean, there was this, this idea of a truce. And, and the word in, in, in Greek, not in the sense of Koine Greek, but Hellenistic Greek, would be um, ekecheria, which literally means holding of hands. So we're kind of coming together joining together during this time of of activity and uh, competition. Now, although the the Greeks did use torches as part of maybe some of the competitions that they did, the torch was not introduced into the Olympic Games um, until 1936 by a man who was hosting it in his country of Germany, and his name was Adolf Hitler. And part of the connection was he wanted to identify the Aryan race as this kind of elevated, godlike race, and so took the flame from Olympia and had it go through all these different countries and ended up there in Berlin. Didn't know that, did you? Huh? And that tradition has continued on to this day. And I'm not saying it's wrong to carry on the tradition, um, because... that that flame or that torch has become now, I think, a symbol of goodwill, fair play, and togetherness. I got that from the webpage, all right? Just this idea of goodwill, fair play, and togetherness. doesn't matter what kind of squabbles we have going on around the world, we're going to come together for athletic competition, and there's going to be goodwill, fair play, and togetherness. And so ultimately, when the games begin, the um, torch comes in that opening ceremony, and they finally go up, and they, they, they light that, that perpetual torch for the games, and um, it really is, in a sense, declaring a truce for the sake of humanity for a period of time of those games. It is a light for the world of sorts. I mean, just think about it. The, it, the symbolism of that is like we are gathered together together for this, you know, this, this event of games. And we're just going to settle down and we're going to enjoy these games. And so when, when we read this passage, when we see what Jesus claims for himself in this passage, we have to understand that even this idea of being a light to the world is not a new concept with Jesus. It is actually a concept that goes back into much of history. But Jesus is purposeful in declaring himself to be the light of the world. And so Jesus is using this declaration to describe himself to the Pharisees, to those in attendance at the temple and are listening to his teaching as well as ultimately to us. And so look, look if you would please that first verse, verse 12. Here's what Jesus says, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, to understand the impact of what Jesus is saying, we do need to do some some groundwork and kind of consider the setting of of this particular passage of scripture. And so for for that, I want us uh, to, first of all, look at the first words, well, actually, verse 20, of our, of our text. Notice what it says. This is kind of John's summary statement um, and his commentary about when this was taking place. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So this was taking place in the treasury and that would be the, the treasury uh, of the temple in particular, um, the court of, of women. And uh, it was actually a place where people would come, and there were—I think there was like um, like seven, and then there was four more actual uh, chests that were lay, laid out, and, and different ones were there for different kind of, of offerings and gifts. And the last four were free will offerings. And so this was a place where 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 God's children would come to celebrate and to honor God with their love gifts. Okay, they would have sacrifices, but they would also come bearing gifts. And so this was a gathering spot. There were a lot of people that were there that were, it was a a place for Jesus to effectively teach um, day in and day out in the temple and while he was in Jerusalem. It wasn't just he showed up in the temple once. There's this regular activity that's going on in particular during this feast of tabernacles, all right? So we have, first of all, this this understanding, this idea that um, Jesus is there in the temple treasury and he's teaching. Also, I want you to note, this word again in chapter 8 and verse 12, because it says again. Now remember, um, the last time we were in John's gospel, it was the passage about the woman caught in adultery, and one of the questions there was, is this really part of the flow of John's thinking? It seems like it's an addition to his text, um, and we did walk through it together, but the again goes back to chapter 7 and picks up this flow of activity, these events that are taking place during a particular time called the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? And the Feast of Tabernacles included two um, major ceremonies. The first ceremony during this week-long um, event was uh, something that took place in the morning. It was a ceremony that involved water drawing. They would leave the temple and they would go to the, the pool of Salome they would draw water put it in golden pitchers, and they would bring it back to the temple and and, and for the whole journey there were uh, they were singers there were priests and there were people that were gathered together on that journey to the pool and coming back and they would sing songs together as they went on that trip and here's here are some some songs or some some chants that they would make uh, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3 says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Psalm 114, verses 7 and 8. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. And so, you might think, as Jesus in chapter 7 brings up the whole idea of water... I'm sure he was pointing to this whole ceremony that was taking place. Listen to John 7, 37 and 38. We've studied this, but let's just remind ourselves. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he's, he's in the temple during this Feast of Tabernacles, and he's connecting with the events and the celebrations of this feast. He's connecting himself symbolically to what is being celebrated in that feast. Now that's important for us especially as we come to this passage and as we think about the events that took place in the evening, in particular the ceremony that took place in the evening. It wasn't a ceremony of water, it was a ceremony having to do with light. What happens at night? It's dark. And what they would do is they would gather in the temple and uh, the historians have some some differences here, some say two, some say four, but they, they lit these lamps, huge, enormous lamps, and how I understood it to be described is in the temple there are these, these windows, and these windows are not vast and wide, they're, they're kind of narrow and high, and so these lamps were inside the temple, huge, enormous lamps, and these lamps then, once they were lit, would shine through those windows over Jerusalem, and would be kind of like that Batman beacon, you know what I'm talking about? Or remember how I don't see it so much anymore, but those those lights that they'd they'd have, like you know, when Lowe's would be having a special sale or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Those spotlights, that kind of thing. But it was so bright, the historians say that it, it lit up Jerusalem. And so it was it was like this this glow and this light was taking place. Now, we don't typically think of of Judaism during the time of Christ as being some kind of a festive, celebratory, um, might want to say religious experience. We might think back in the days of David, right? Because David would dance and all those people in the choirs and all that kind of stuff. But you don't usually think of that in the context of Christ. They usually think of you know, Pharisees who are fuddy duds and don't want to do anything, right? I mean, it just, you just have this wrong idea. But the Feast of Tabernacles was a, was a week-long celebration. So the lighting of this lamps was to light the lamps because while the lamps were lit in the temple, all this wonderful celebratory activity is taking place. Now here is what the Jewish Mishnah records about what took place during that time, just to kind of give you a picture. He who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. In other words, just that ceremony of water draw- drawing was an incredible, joyful experience. Now, not happy, but joy, celebratory. Then it says, men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs of praises. They even say that the Levitical orchestra was at its best during that time. Yeah, these are images that I'm not used to thinking about as far as Judaism is concerned. Am I right? But here is this incredible week-long celebration. The light is being shined there at night in the midst of the darkness, and people are dancing, they're celebrating, and they're doing all this because they're remembering what God did with his people in the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles Festival was a remembrance of God's provision and faithfulness while the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. And how did he provide for them? Bread from heaven, water from a rock, okay? As well as the provision of light, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So there's definitely a connection here that Jesus is taking to identify himself in this feast. So this was a time of uh, uh, where all attention was on Jerusalem and on the temple. It was a time of great remembrance and celebration and joy. And um, it was a time when, when God was being glorified, but it was also a time when Jesus breaks forth saying, I am the light of the world. And so today, as we study this passage, I really believe that, that, that God would, would want us to see the light. I really believe that he wants us to see the light in all its glory so that we, too, will not walk in darkness, but we, we will have the light of life. Now, remember, in John's gospel, life is an important theme, right? right? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that's the, that's the key to the whole book. I, I've written these things because I want to present Jesus. I want to present the evidence of Jesus ultimately so that you will believe, but in believing, you will have what? Life. So it's life that is found in and through believing Jesus. And we're also told that that life is abundant life. So it's not just existing, it's, it's, it's having life that is full, that is, that is uh, um, you know, powerful, that is experiential with this one who we call Jesus. So that's our goal today and we're going to take our time to work through this passage and seek to reach that goal. So let's just let's just pray together. Lord, would you would you humble our hearts, Lord, as we come to this passage? Would we see you high and lifted up? And Lord, what we what we know not, would you teach us. Lord, what we have not, would you give us and what we are not, Lord, would you make us and allow me as your messenger to simply, Lord, be your mouthpiece, that you in all your glory would be seen and that as a result of that, Lord, our lives would be challenged and fashioned and shaped by the life that we find in you. And uh, Lord, would you just now help us to grasp, Lord, um, the fact that you are so on display in this text, we ask in your name, amen. First of all, let's talk about being the light. Of course, being the light, we're, we're looking here at Jesus. He says, I am the light of the world now the question i have for you is this why is light important is light important let me give you a scenario to help you remind yourself that light is important and you probably will relate with this all right i'm usually the first one that's up in our home and when it's dark in particular during the winter months i get up i might go take a shower or i might get up and go downstairs and get coffee going or something like that I am trying to be considerate of the rest of the family, so I'm not turning lights on. And so I I leave my my bedroom, and right next to my bedroom are the stairs. But the thing is, I have some obstacles along the way. And those obstacles along the way come in the name of Timon and Pumbaa. And Timon and Pumbaa are our cats, okay? And they literally wait outside our door because they know I'm going to get up. And what they do is they want to be fed. So I open the door, and literally, I'm worried about stepping on them, and they're just—they're running around my feet as I'm going down the stairs, right? I mean, you talk about nine lives these cats have, all right? It just takes one little crunch, and Timon and Pumbaa are not going to be around much longer, okay? Um, Although one of them is very around right now, and that's a whole other story. But it's not just the cats. It's also the shoes, it's other stuff. And I don't want you to get an idea that our house is a wreck, but our house oftentimes is, well, uh, there may be a shoe laying out here and you go around the corner and, and it's, it's dark and we have a piano and sometimes the bench is laid out. So I'm walking along and it's like, ah, oh, bump my knee on the bench and, and then I go around the corner, I catch my toe on the edge of the piano, little thing sticking out there and, you know, all that kind of stuff happens and then, you know, the door is left open and you run into it and finally I get to the place which is our... Well, it's a bar area, but it's not a bar, if you know what I'm saying, right? But it has a sink, and there's a light switch there. Boom, light comes on. It doesn't light up the whole house, but it's enough for me to feed the cats and get along. But that darkness hinders my progress, right? It's hard to see in the context where it is dark. Although we might get used to our environment, we can't always see what is there. So can you imagine what life would be like without light, and what I would like to propose to you that light is so important that without it, there's only darkness and there's only death. Let's just think of it, first of all, darkness. Darkness would result in our inability to see. It's so dark, they say, you know, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Have you ever experienced that before? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty eerie. But just imagine if there was no light and because of that, what you could not see. You wouldn't be able to see your environment, you wouldn't be able to see structures around you, you wouldn't be able to see chairs, paths, obstacles, terrain, landscapes, vegetation. You wouldn't be able to see any of that. You wouldn't be able to see each other, which may not be a bad idea for some of us, but right, it's you wouldn't be able to see each other's features, colors of hair and, you know, I went out and got my hair done today, you know, I I can't tell. It, It looked nice, honey, right? I mean, I can't see it because I can't see it. It's dark, all right? Um, The color of your eyes, the nice outfit you have or whatever. You can't can't appreciate any of that. You can't see it. Why? Because it's dark. And so all those things mean nothing. Another thing I thought was really interesting when I contemplated this is this. We would not be able to interact with a written word. Those of you who like to read, guess what? Too bad. Yeah, sorry. You know. Now, there may be other alternatives, and we would adjust accordingly. But you understand, light is incredibly important and powerful and necessary, and if we didn't have it, it would, it would be an adjustment, right? <laughs> Understatement. The lack of light also, though, I think brings death. Plants need light, right? Now, I'm going back to my physical science days, right, and try to remember, yeah, plants need light in order to grow and to survive. Take away light, and what happens? They wither. They die. Now, have every, any of you ever lived up in um, Alaska? You know, people people experience this this kind of oppression because it's always dark and it's always gloomy because there's just kind of there's there's no light, and you know there's there there are, there are effects of that, and I think there's a there's a death in a sense that descends when there is a lack of. Light And so what Jesus says here, though, is I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So um, we are very fortunate to have some natural sources of light. Of course, during the day, it's the sun that is somewhere out there, right? And then during the night, oftentimes we have the moon. We certainly have the stars. Those are all, um, well, secondary and natural forms of light. Um, but creation demands the presence of light for survival. And so, truly, light is necessary for life. And, and I think light, we can recognize, is necessary for um, the argument that John is giving here, that evidence that Jesus is God leads to belief and ultimately bears fruit in life. And we understand if Jesus is light, then it means that those who receive Jesus have this life, right? That's kind of the, the thinking, the argument. So let's just Let's just think about his statement, I am the light of the world, just, and let's pull it apart a little bit and think it through. First of all, he says, I am the light of the world. I'm just going to emphasize some different points of this, this statement. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his very being. He's talking about his, you might want to say his, his essence, his, his attribute, who he actually is. He is equal to the light. Light is Jesus. All right? Secondly, I am the light, not one of many lights. All right, there are not a thousand points of light in this context. There's one light. It is Jesus. He is the, the unique, the only, the only answer that brings life, the only solution that ends with life. It is Jesus. Right? He is the light. And then there's this, these attributes that light brings. Light exposes man's sin. Light reveals the heart of God. Light becomes a guide to God's children. Light um, brings confidence so that we can step as we're going down the stairs and see where we need to avoid things. And, um, and so go, again, this is going back to this whole idea of, of light during this, this day in this or this week of celebration, where these These lamps are lit, huge lamps, lights are lit in this temple, and they are shining everywhere. Jesus has pointed them, I'm sure, as he's saying this, or he has them over his back as he's addressing the people, I am the light of the world. And so the last one here is this, I am the light of the world, which you have to understand to his audience in particular, and to the Pharisees specifically, this was an offensive statement, because the God of Israel was certainly the light for Israel. But at this point in time, the Pharisees in particular had kind of squelched their God to be a uniquely um, Israel-only kind of God, very selective, not kind of a global God. And so for Jesus to say, I'm the light of the world, broadens things considerably, He didn't say, I'm the light of Jerusalem. He didn't say, I'm the light of Israel. He says, I am the light of the world. And guys, there's some implications for us. If this is true, that means the light of Jesus has has spread out across the world. So that uh, no man is without excuse. Now, theologically, there's a lot of things that we have to think through to come to that understanding What does that look like? What does that mean? Is it simply the conscience of man? Is it the fact that that the actual word of God has gone to those people? In God's eyes, the light of Jesus Christ has gone out to the world. Now, that is offensive. It's offensive to these Pharisees. And so we recognize that Jesus is talking about being the light, but now we have these Pharisees that are rejecting the light. They're responding to it And uh, this is not the first time we see Jesus and the Pharisees interacting. We've actually seen them interact, and we've seen it get worse and worse and worse, to the point that they're saying, we don't like his testimony, we don't like his witness, we don't like the claims that he is making, and so here is how we're going to respond. They know they're guilty before him with the words that he says, but they're also without scruples, and so they take certain decisive measures. In chapter 7, verses 1 and verse 44... We find out that they seek to eliminate him. They seek to kill him. They plot his death. But it doesn't succeed. Then we find in chapter 7, verse 52 through 8, that would be the whole passage there of the woman caught in adultery. You understand, that that encounter was not about the woman. That encounter was about them trying to trick Jesus to give an answer that would be unfavorable. But Jesus gives an answer and he challenges them in the context of that. So first of all, they're trying to eliminate him. Secondly, they're trying to discredit his character. And then when we come to this passage, they are trying to dismiss um, him on a mere technicality. Now, let's just think about this. Here is how they respond, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So Jesus is making this claim, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And they're like, well, um, appreciate what you have to say, Jesus, um, but you're just one person, and you're speaking about yourself. Therefore, your testimony is not valid. Now, where does that come from? It comes from the Old Testament passages that say, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every deed shall be established. In particular, those who are, Two of those are, are brought up in the context of murder taking place. The, the last one is brought up in the context of, of a very serious accusation being brought against someone. But no accusation can be brought unless there are two or three witnesses. And they would then take that principle and they would apply it throughout their, I want to say, legal system. So if Jesus is making the claim, I am the light of the world, and they are saying to him, well, you know what, your testimony isn't true because you're simply bearing witness about yourself, what are they doing? They're not acknowledging his claim and they're not even considering his claim. They are dismissing his claim based on a technicality. Now I want you to think through this just in our kind of a context. Um, What are some ways that, that people dismiss the things of God or dismiss the gospel on a technicality? Some might say, Well, you know, before I listen to the gospel, answer me this question. If God created the whole universe, and he's the only one that created it, could he swallow up the universe and himself at the same time and still be God? What's the point of that? It's a smokescreen. I don't want to listen to the truth, so I'm going to come up with some kind of a technical, philosophical argument. Right? How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know what the answer is? As many as God wants. But see, statements like that are just little technical things that people will bring up because they don't want to hear the truth of the gospel. Now, there may be some more, I might want to say, reasonable technicalities. Someone might say, you know, I'm just having a hard time understanding how the word of God is written. You've got page after page after page, but these are, these are man's writings. How could this be God's writings? Legitimate question for someone who wants to truly know, right? But for someone who just doesn't want, doesn't want to listen to the gospel, it can be. Simply a, a technicality just to kind of brush you aside. Or how about this one? This one has come up more recently. It's like, well, you know, you know, what are your thoughts about the Crusades and all the, the slaughter that took place then? And what would my answer be? That was a lot of sinful behavior during the Crusades. A lot of things happened under the label of Christianity that did not honor God. Well, you know, Hitler was a Christian. Really? He studied that one out. You know, well, your presidents are Christians. Well, yeah, we could even look at that too. But see, these are all smoke screens. They're little technicalities because people do not want to come face to face with the truth and the claims of Jesus that he is the light of the world or whatever else he may say about himself. These are technicalities. Another one, why are there so many denominations? It's evident that the church just can't get along and there's a problem, so the God of the church cannot be, you know, the God of the universe. How do you want to put it? These are technicalities. When the gospel is presented, when the truth of Jesus is on display, those who are darkened in their heart, who are blind because they're in darkness, they can't see their hand in front of their face spiritually, will go to a place and they'll use the technicality um, to stop listening to the truth. Now, they may use other tactics, but in this particular situation, that is what they're doing. So how will Jesus respond to their arrogant accusations and their quick dismissal? Let's just think through what the text says And um, it's a little wordy, and I, I, you know, so we're going to have to kind of just force ourselves through, and I'll try and give you the gist of what's going on here. But Jesus' response, first of all, oh, let me pause. Um, From verse 13 to verse uh, 19, the word um, martureo, which means I bear witness or testimony, is used seven times. So, this is all about Jesus saying, Here's my testimony, here's my testimony, here's my testimony, here's my testimony. Okay, so this is all a reaction to the testimony of Jesus, to his self declaration of, of who he is to those people. Okay, um, so it's, it's pretty staggering. First of all, let's look at verse 14. Jesus says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You may brush me aside on a mere technicality, but understand this: my knowledge is superior to your knowledge. In fact, I can say it this way: you are ignorant." Now this is no new theme for Jesus as he interacted with the Pharisees. In fact, you go back to chapter five, and there's this whole dialogue that he has with them, and he's proving by a number of different witnesses that he is um, the very son of God, that he is God. And one of the things he appeals there is the fact that they just don't know. They say they know, but they really don't know. right? And he convicts them with that truth. As we continue on, verse 15, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, judging according to the flesh is to judge based on human standards, based on human understanding. So it's not just based on the fact that, you know, he's, he's just a mere man um, or that, you know, he's from a particular city or town. Um, but it is also with, with a, a judgment that is sinful, that is tainted. Okay, so he's saying uh, that my, my judgment is impartial. Whereas theirs is partial. It is a tainted judgment. Right? You know, if we're going to play a sport and we're, you know, the old playground days when you were a little kid and you're like, okay, let's break them into teams and, you know, let's have, you know, you know 11 guys over here, 11 guys over here, let's play soccer together and, you know, who's going to be captains? I'll be captains. Those captains are going to be choosing those teams based on tainted judgments. Their choice of a player for their team is going to be based on a bias they believe in that moment about that person who's going to come on their team. And there's typically always someone left on the fence going, why didn't they pick me? Well, that kind of thing, right? Well, we don't want you because you're no good. Right? That's, that's a judgment on their part about that particular individual, right? And so we view judgment oftentimes through that same lens. Listen, when God, if he were to pick a team, would pick a perfect team that would be unbiased and would be fair and would be totally pure and right. But when man exercises his measurement, It is tainted. By sin, it's tainted. By bias, it's tainted. By things that you want. So he says, "You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So your judgment is tainted, but my judgment is impartial because my judgment is the judgment of the Father." Now, he's he's again continuing to give explanations and make claims. And they can take it or they can leave it. Notice verse 17 and following. Here he says, my testimony is corroborated. Verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus now is kind of saying, "Oh, you want to be technical? Let's be technical for a minute. I testify about myself. Secondly... The Father testifies about me. Now, okay, I realize this is like, you know, this is kind of heavy stuff, but go back with me to chapter 5, if you would. Go back to chapter 5. In chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, Jesus gives evidence to prove um, that he is God, and he he gives three witnesses. And those three witnesses are the witness of John the Baptist, who came testifying about Jesus as the Messiah. The signs that Jesus performed were testifying about the fact that he is God. And then the scriptures also testify that he is God. So let's just go back there quickly. and let's just, I'm just gonna just highlight a couple of those verses just so that we can see that for ourselves here and, and connect the dots here and maybe remember those passages, if you remember those times that we were, we were in them. So look at, look at verse 33. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than John for the works. Now, here is his works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then you jump down to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus has already established this with the Pharisees. So this... Continual encounter now is simply him reinforcing what he's already said to be true. And that's why it says here, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. We've already talked about this. All right. You want two witnesses. It's me and it's the father. Okay. But even when they are challenged with their arrogance, ignorance and utter contempt for Jesus, the hardness of their hearts is clearly on display. And clearly the truth that Jesus' previous words in chapter 5, verse 38, they do not have the word of God God biting in their hearts. Verse 42 of chapter 5, they do not have the love of God within them, just are are proof to the fact that their hearts are darkened. They are ultimately, because of the darkness, blind to the light. Now here's something that's just really important for us to understand. Darkness and blindness is there because of unbelief. The light is shining, but if you can't see the light, the problem isn't with the light. Understand that? The light is shining, but if there is blindness and darkness, the problem isn't with the light. The problem is with the person who is looking, and the problem is the person with the person's unbelief. Jesus has been on display, on display, on display, but the Pharisees do not want to listen to They do not want to accept it. They do not want to humble themselves before it. Yes, it is a little confusing to them. Yes, it's a struggle for them to connect the dots. But ultimately, when he declares himself and makes it very, very plain to them, they're like, no, um, you know, you can't can't claim this for yourself. You need more testimony than that. Okay, let's talk about that. Oh, by the way, here's the, the testimony. One, two. And notice how they respond. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore... Where is your father? In other words, if you're going to use the father as a corroborating testimony, um, where is he? <laughs> we want to talk to him. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, reading the rest of chapter 8, you'll know for the next couple of paragraphs, Jesus jumps in and talks about the fact, listen, you don't know. Abraham is your father. In fact, your father is the devil. You think you know the father, but you don't know the father. And in fact, the father that is your father is the devil himself. That's later on in chapter 8. It's all connected here. All right, so this is, this is powerful interaction that Jesus has with this blindness that is there. So friends, here, here's one of the harsh realities of life. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 9 and following. This is how John begins his gospel. He begins his gospel by introducing the word. And here is what we find in verse 9 and following. The true light which gives light to who? Everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, which would be a subset of the world, and his own people did not receive him. That's what's happening here. I am the light of the world, and I'm coming to you, Israel, in particular, I'm coming to you, Pharisees, who are the leaders, who are supposed to be the religious arm of Israel, and you reject me. The light has definitely been on display. But the blindness is there from Israel. Now let me ask you a question. If, if this room was totally dark and someone lit a match, would I have to prove to you that someone has lit a match? What kind of evidence, what kind of testimony would I have to give you to prove to you that a match has been lit? Would I go over to Matt and say, Matt, can you, would you give evidence that that match has been lit? Well, I don't know, Rod. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, it is. All right, then, Rebecca, what about you? Would you give evidence to that? No, the light itself is evidence. You understand what I'm saying? Just because it's lit gives evidence itself that it is light. You don't have to do any studies or write a dissertation. It is what it is because it's on display. You can see it. Light bears testimony to itself. Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. He doesn't need corroborating testimony, although he has it. He's the light. He is shining in darkness. Now, let's talk about following the light. Being the light, rejecting the light, now following the light. Um Jesus begins with the claim that he's the light of the world. That claim results in conflict with the Pharisees, but now we want to see the comfort that he gives to those who follow him. Verse 12 now, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So these words are a comfort and they are a promise to anyone who follows. Literally, whoever continues to follow and keeps on continuing. That's the, the tense in the Greek. You keep on following and you continue to keep on following. So this is talking about someone who has embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior. They've seen their sinfulness before God. They've, they've seen the, the, the fact of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that through that sacrifice that he has, has satisfied God's wrath and and, and when you put your faith and trust in that, you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and you're moving on your Christian walk. He's talking about that person who has believed and has life, okay? If you are that person, we're told here that you will not walk in darkness and you will have the light of life. Those are two very, very powerful statements. Now remember... With the background of these these lamps in the temple blazing over his shoulder, Jesus speaks, saying, I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself as, as as the light, not necessarily as the sun, but he's identifying himself as the light as it is on display in the temple. And the light that is on display in the temple is in reference to a light that shone in the context of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. So what we're having here is Jesus interpreting himself into, properly so, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, so we're going to walk through just a few passages here in the Old Testament scriptures. And what we find there is Jesus is the light of the pillar and cloud of fire that went with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it has, we can summarize its, its effect or its, its presence or his effect and his presence in four ways. Now, can you imagine getting up every morning as you were part of Israel in the, in, in the wilderness, encamped in order all around the tabernacle, right? You get up in the morning as you look out over the tabernacle, you see this pillar of cloud and fire. I mean, you see the power of God on display. When was the last time you walked out and just saw fire just there? Not because anything's burning, but just because it's there. It's the Shekinah glory of God. And what Jesus is identifying here is that it's the Shekinah glory of God is actually me. I am this light, but it's a powerful light. Let's look then uh, back at Numbers chapter 9 and verse 15 and following. It is God on display. Every day with the people of God in the wilderness, yes, wandering in disobedience, but yes, still able to see the power of God. Numbers 9, 15 and following. I'm going to read through these quickly, but hopefully you'll grasp some of the things that are taking place here. Numbers 9, 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was, the cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. And when the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening till morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. You know, it is interesting to me that God is very, very clear in particular, in repeating himself many times here to make sure we get the point, right? The point is, the cloud was there. When the cloud lifted up, they would go, and they would ultimately follow the cloud. The point here is that this cloud of fire um, was on display, and his power was on display in and among his people. And so Jesus, in identifying himself as this light for the world, as this pillar and cloud of fire, reveals that he is God, that all his power is present with us every day. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder that we are not absent from the power of Christ, that we are very presently affected by the power of Christ. Now this is just coming to me as I'm thinking right now, but just as we talked about the gospel, one of the things that is true is that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The power of Christ on the cross, taking our sin, results in the fact that we are constantly experiencing his power as the recipient of God's wrath, shielding us from what God is putting on his shoulders. It's there every day, and we need to remind ourselves by preaching the gospel to ourselves that that is the reality. He is present. He is shining. He is on display in his presence clothed righteousness for us. Secondly, there's God's presence. Now, certainly some of that was in this passage, but I want you to look at another passage, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, beginning at verse 21. And here we have God's presence. God's presence. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from them before the people. Here is God's presence, he, he's always with him, we found this in, in the Numbers passage, we see this in the Exodus passage, he's just always with them. it's a reminder not only of his power, but it's also a reminder of his constant presence, All right, he promises never to leave us or forsake us, he promises when he gave us that great commission, that you know, behold, I am with you always. All right, so he, he is there present with us wherever we go. Now, just pause. In, in our church right now, there are people who are struggling, they are hurting, and, and, and this week there are going to be things that happen, there's going to be struggles and concerns, and we need to remind ourselves that God is present with us. He is always present with us. And if we lose track of that reality... Then we begin to try and venture through the wilderness ourselves, but he is there to be with us. Then we find in Exodus chapter 14, Exodus 14, beginning at verse 19 and through verse 20, we find God's protection. Exodus 14, verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of God, that is Christ, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of, of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In other words, this, this, this pillar and this presence of God was there as a protection for Israel against Egypt. So not only was he there in all his power, not only was he there um, as a presence, but he was there also protecting his people with the, you know, the pillar of cloud being in that presence between Israel and the Egyptians. Now, the other thing that you can say also as you look at these passages that deal with the cloud and the fire is, remember what the elements were like. And there, there, there are times when this, this cloud would envelop the people this, we're talking about the wilderness, where there are extremes of weather, right? Incredibly hot during the day and really, really cold at night, All right, Cloud cover does what? What does it do? It, it keeps things warm, doesn't it? But doesn't it contain? It, you know, when, when, it's, when it's a clear, clear sky and it's, it's winter, what happens? It's usually cooler. But when the clouds cover, it usually contains heat, right? So you have this, this kind of containing going on. And then also you have fire to, to provide for heat. So there is, this, there is this kind of protection that is going on, even by the, the actual element that it is um, in, its, in its essence, right? So since Jesus is the pillar, he is reminding us of his ongoing protection over us. Now certainly it doesn't mean that we're never going to you know, have any difficulties. That's a whole theology of suffering that scripture reveals for us. But none of that happens without his understanding, his gaze, his purpose, and his will. But we, we, we can be sure that he is powerful. We can be sure that he is present and that he is protecting us. And there are many times that we don't recognize that he has actually protected us. And it comes in the smallest things. That You might say, you know, I left my keys in the house. That might simply be 30 seconds of you not being in a car accident, right? You don't know how all those things work together. But God is at work in our lives in his process protecting us. The next one here is God's guidance. God's guidance. Now it just comes from all the different passages. The, right, the pillar of cloud went before, it was behind, and it would, he would, you know, it would move and it would stop and then say, this is where you're going to be. Now, the wilderness was a wilderness. People get lost in wildernesses. They don't get lost if they have a guide. And Jesus, as the pillar of fire and cloud, identifies himself as one who guides his people. So we're just picking up on these various themes that when when he's lifted up and he moves, we are to lift up and we are to move. When he settles down, we are to settle down. And and the point for us then with Christ is that Christ is our guide. He is the one that is the light that is coming to our lives, and he gives direction. He gives wisdom, and we need to recognize that not only is he powerful and present and uh, protecting us, but he is the one to whom we should go to seek direction and wisdom for what he is calling us to. Now, we were not going to be able to do that if we're just kind of coming up with our own methodologies to figure out you know, what, what God has for us and somehow call it God's will if we're not interacting with the one who is the light of the world. When you make a decision, are you making a decision with a heart that is pure and right and holy, get this, that has been affected by the light of Scripture and has, been, has resulted in a light, you might want to say, of holiness in the heart? So that you can see clearly what God wants you to do, how He wants you to think, and how He wants you to behave. Light impacts us on many levels and in many places. And Jesus is the light. His word, we're told, is a lamp unto my feet and what? A light to my path. Okay? You can go first Peter talks there about this this light of holiness. So all these things are working together, but they're the result and the, the, the effect and the benefits of the gospel being at work in my life. And so I need to recognize, and you almost have a visual. It's not that you have a pillar of fire that's you know, going before you and it's covering you, but it's Jesus who's along there with you. It's, he, he's, he's functioning with you in your life. This is true of us as individuals. This is true of us as a church. I don't know all the ways that he's been doing all those things for us as a church, but we can be sure he has. You know, this church is young, and I explain to people how we, you know, how we started, and they're like, wow, that's really, really incredible. No, I mean, you know, we just said, okay, God, we want to do this, and we did our best to try and you know put you know cards in, in the right spot and ducks in a row and say this is how God would have us do it, and we're doing it, and people are coming, and they're thankful, and, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's not because we come up with some kind of a church business plan, and if you do this and press this, you know, boom, these things are going to happen. It's just like just walking with God. He's guiding us along the way, and that's life. That's the way it is with your families. That's the way it is with your jobs. Life happens. And, and, and when life happens, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the light of the world. And if that is true, then he is our light. And if we follow him, we won't walk in darkness. Guess what? We will have the light of life. We will have the light that allows us to live life and life the way God wants us to Live it. So let's just think through that very briefly here as we bring things to a close. Let me just quote a few scriptures here. We read them earlier, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. That's Isaiah 9-2. A little further down. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a sign is given. Who is that child? Who is that son? It is the Messiah. We know theologically and and, and from biblical um, theology that that ultimately is a statement referring to Jesus Christ himself. And so we read back into this text a description of who he is. It says, And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who Jesus is then as as your light to give you life. He is your wonderful counselor. He is the one to whom you run to get counsel. And that counsel isn't like, well, I may be good. No, it's wonderful counsel. Counsel. Just think about that word wonderful. I know sometimes we overuse words, and so sometimes that word loses its meaning. It is incredibly powerful, joyful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is not shaken. He is is the one who was on display in all of his glory. He is mighty, and he is God. He's the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. When I listen to his counsel, when I listen to his word, and I'm obedient to it, it results in peace in my life. Not necessarily, there's not going to be any problems, but it results in me being at peace with him and saying, okay, here's the situation. I can go through it because you are my God. You're the light of the world. And you are the one that gives me life. So the bottom line is that he's, he's the light of the world and life can be found in him. So what does he want us to do? And this is more of a concluding application here. Following the light means knowing the light. You actually have, well, you don't have any. It means, means knowing the light. One of, our, one of our goals as a church is to know, is to know the gospel, it's to know the word of God, and ultimately then it's to know Christ and God that is revealed in the gospel and in the word of God. And, and your discipleship is this growing, unfolding knowledge and awareness of who God is. Because he is on display throughout his word. Secondly, having known him, it is to love him. When you see Jesus as the light, and he is your light, and he's the one that's giving you life, I shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love him. Respond in adoration, in affection, in, in just adoring him for who he is. Thirdly, you respond by trusting the light. And I know sometimes when God says in his word, I want you to do this. I want you to seek forgiveness. I want you to step back from maybe uh, choices or decisions you made or, or maybe just be honest about a way that you, you sinned against someone or maybe you stole something or, or maybe you said something unkind and, and the word of God is coming to bear in you and you say, okay, I know you, I love you, and now I want to trust you to do what you are asking me to do, which then brings us to the next thing, and that is to submit to the light, right? These are all kind of, wrestling matches, but God wants us to to recognize it's not that, you know, we make him Lord. He is Lord, and I need to submit to him and to his word, and ultimately, it's obeying the light. See, the, the light is there not just to say, oh, here I am. Look at me, although God is on display, and he wants to be glorified, but he's also a light because he is affecting his essence in and through us, and ultimately, we could even add to this that we are the Ones who carry the torch of his light to other people. The same blessing that we receive, he takes and wants to shower through us to others, which connects us with that whole missions concept too. Okay? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord, help us today to see you on display, to recognize, Lord, that there are times when we we want to push you away on a mere technicality, a rationalizing of our own thinking, um, some way, Lord, we may wrestle with a truth that you are conveying to us through your word, and Lord, you you want us to stop and to, to see that you are the light and that you you desire to be known and And when you are understood, Lord, that that results in us just adoring and loving you. And Lord, help us just wrestle through that stuff because, Lord, ultimately, who you are and what you desire is for our good and for our ultimate joy. You are that wonderful counselor. You are that prince of peace. You are that one that knows us like a father knows a child. You know us best. And you are committed to us and you are a mighty God. So there's nothing that, there's nothing that hinders you. And Lord, you, you just want us to come before you and to come adoring you and come trusting you and submitting to you. And Lord, help us to see that this, this message here, yes, was for the Pharisees. Yes, was for those who were gathered there in the temple. But ultimately, it's for us that we would embrace you as the light of the world. And through that, be strengthened Be assured of your presence and power, your provision, and your guidance, Lord, for our lives. Thank you for all you do, for who you are, for what you are making us. We ask this in your name. Amen.